Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Paul Jaminet, an astrophysicist and software entrepreneur. Uh, his wife, Sho Ching, is a vascular biologist and cancer researcher on the Harvard Medical School faculty, and they have co-authored a book called Perfect Health Diet, Four Steps to Renewed Health, Youthful Vitality, and Long Life. Well, who doesn't want that? So welcome, Paul. Uh, thank you for having me, Miriam. It's great to be here. Paul, you and your wife developed chronic illnesses in your 30s and 40s that conventional medicine couldn't cure. Please tell us what happened and what that led to. Well, um, I, I had had some health problems, you know, some minor health problems my whole life, but uh, one of them was chronic acne. And in my late 20s, I, I took a, a year-long course of antibiotics for that, followed by Accutane. And while I was on the antibiotics, my health uh, got significantly worse. I, w I was a runner, and I slowed down tremendously. I developed rosacea. Um, it, you know, mm -hmm. doctors didn't, uh, you know, didn't recognize any of those symptoms, uh, so I just accepted it. You know, I was I was very busy at work, um, but. Things gradually got worse. I started to develop uh, neuropathy. I had trouble keeping my balance. I would drop things, bump into things. I started having memory loss, and uh, uh, my mood was impaired. I uh, wasn't nearly as happy as I had been before, um, and was more easily irritated. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and I just didn't feel well. And... Uh, and, and everything, it seemed like every year uh, things were a little bit worse. And my wife had a number of chronic health problems too, uh, hypothyroidism, uh, a lot of reproductive problems. She had endometriosis, uterine fibroids, ovarian cysts, um, acid reflux, um, and uh, was somewhat depressed. And. Uh, uh, you know, and again, she got no help from doctors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she had she had surgery, but it didn't fix anything. Um, and so, and and in my case, um, I had quit working full time in order to uh, do some research and write a book. And I was finding that uh, my cognitive issues were making it very difficult for me to work productively. And I decided. Uh, you know, I was too young to be uh, losing my mind, and uh, <laughs> I, I'd better focus on becoming healthy first and, mm -hmm. and worry about all my other work. And uh, um, and the, the first thing I found uh, that really made a difference was uh, changing my diet. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so in 2005, I tried a version of, of the paleo diet, mm -hmm. um, and it had big effects, both good and bad. And uh, um, I believe strongly enough in the uh, evolutionary argument uh, for that sort of diet that I was willing to stick through the bad effects and focused on learning how to refine it uh, in order to get all the good effects without the bad effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, what, what some of the bad effects? Well, I had, a, I, I, I had some chronic infections and I had immediately a, a very strong uh, flare-up of a candida fungal mm -hmm. infection. Uh, uh, to, to the point that uh, uh, one ear ballooned up and became red. And uh, um, I had uh, uh, one of the things that, that happened after adopting a low-carb diet uh, I realized later when this happened again, when I went on antibiotics, um, I had a strong uh, die-off of white blood cells that were infected with a, a bacterium that suppresses uh, the natural uh, uh, apoptosis or cell death of white blood cells, mm -hmm. which keeps them from becoming infected. And um, 
And so when I went low carb, they all died off, and uh, and the fungal, uh, the candida was able to make a systemic infection for a few weeks, which was pretty scary. Yeah, um, it's it's almost the 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 classic uh, comment that the operation was a success, but the patient died. <laughs> well, it, it it was it In was risky, case, patient, and it was also yeah. very confusing. You know what was happening. Right. Uh, my doctor, his first impulse when he when he saw me was oh it's a you know very dangerous cystitis and he gave me antibiotics which uh made, which it made the worse. white blood cell die off worse and uh, mm-hmm. so anyway but uh that was uh that was the immediate problem i also had some longer term problems uh which were also due to the uh primarily to the candida infection so um, what's interesting here is that it, it's a bit like a detective story. You're, you're trying to track down the initial cause, and then you find that there are so many interrelated effects that that forced you and your wife to go more deeply into the science and, and kind of unravel all the connections. That's right. Your, your book was just so fascinating in that respect. Yeah, so, so we attribute bad health to some combination of malnutrition, toxins, and infections. And most people have half a dozen to a dozen chronic infections. Uh, most people are unaware of their infections. Um, and a typical person may have a dozen or two dozen nutrient deficiencies. And people get substantial amounts of toxins uh, from their food uh, and other environmental sources. and you know, so a typical person has, you know, maybe 40 uh, things that are negatively impacting their health. And you can imagine all the different combinations, uh, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, can conspire to produce bad health. So, um, you know, that's why doctors have so much trouble curing chronic diseases, because there's no single cause, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there's no one intervention uh, that makes a substantial difference. And we're always looking for the magic bullet. Yeah, so that's why we titled our book Perfect Health Diet. It, it's really uh, about a strategy. Um, you should aim for making your, your diet perfect. If you eliminate all of those instances of malnutrition, you eliminate toxins from your diet, you're taking away most of the causes of ill health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it becomes much easier to diagnose any infections you might have and to come up with appropriate treatments. Um, so what we're really um, trying to provide is a strategy uh, for becoming as healthy as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's more a, a diet that's part of an approach to achieving perfect health or getting close to it. So you, you tend to s- s- recommend that people start with the diet. That's um, right. Um, so what are the elements that you look at? Um, well, the reason for starting with the diet is a healthy diet is very benign. It won't do you any harm, and it will do you a lot of good. Um, it will clarify a lot of symptoms. Uh, the trouble with starting with antibiotics and trying to attack infections is that if you're on a bad diet, there's a good chance they won't work. Um, So there's kind of a tipping point in infections. If the infection can grow faster than you're killing it, uh, then you won't get a cure uh, from the drugs and and they may have side effects. Um, And if the antibiotics aren't working, then it may lead you astray and uh, lead you to misdiagnose your problem. Well, uh, the other thing about antibiotics is that they kill off the benign bacteria in your intestinal tract, which you actually need to create much, to, 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 uh, that's part of your immune system. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, drugs always have negative effects, and, and so uh, it's much better to start with, with diet first. If you optimize your diet, you'll find that maybe you won't need any drugs, uh, but if you if you do need antibiotics, then they'll work much better uh, mm-hmm. once your diet is good. So we all, we do recommend starting with diet and nutrition first. Um, 
Well, let's stay with the diet for a moment. Uh, you said that you tried the paleo diet, and we've just had a number of people on who recommend the paleo diet. So you have a kind of a refinement on the paleo diet in that you recommend what you call safe starches. So first, can you give us the general guidelines for the diet that you recommend and, and then perhaps how it differs from the paleo diet? Yeah, so in general, um, our diet is a moderate carb, moderate protein, and relatively high fat diet. So we typically recommend getting maybe 20 to 30% of calories from carbohydrates, uh, maybe 15% of calories from protein, and a majority of calories from fat uh, but the fats should be almost all saturated and monounsaturated fats. The diet should be very low in omega-6 fats, and you should have enough omega-3 fats to balance the omega-6 uh, that you're bound to get. And uh, you can do that by eating something like a pound a week of oily fish, like salmon or sardines. Um, and among uh, plant foods, um, we favor getting mostly glucose. So uh, starches digest to almost 100% glucose. Um, things like fruits and berries, it, it varies with the uh, fruit or berry, but they'll typically digest to maybe 50% glucose, 50% fructose. Um, you know, we think a good diet should be mostly glucose, some fructose. So, you know, a good diet might end up being 75 or 80% glucose and 20% fructose. So we recommend getting much of the carbs from starchy foods like potatoes or white rice um, as, a, as opposed to uh, a fruit-dominant diet, uh, which is what many uh, paleo authors recommend. Mm -hmm. And certainly you, um, you start by eliminating sugars. Uh, you, you get your glucose from starch, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, there's really no good reason to eat added sugars. Um, you know, so we, we are relatively low carb compared to a typical American diet. So a typical American gets maybe 50% of calories from carbs. Um, we're about half that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, but the other side is it's much healthier to get the carbs from food. So plant foods have a number of nutrients, um, and a number of other benefits, uh, to them. Uh, that uh, you want to you want to bring those benefits along with the with the calories. Okay, let's talk about fats for a moment. You talk about saturated fats, so that includes animal fats like butter and and fat from you know lard and fat from beef, um, but also you you're a big fan of coconut oil. Why is that? Um, well, coconut oil is one of the few natural sources of shorter chain fats. So uh, human breast milk is about 10%. Uh, the, the fats are about 10% composed of these uh, shorter chain fats, uh, which go to the liver uh, exclusively. They nourish the liver. The liver often exports their energy as uh, things called ketones to the rest of the body. And ketones are beneficial for uh, the the central nervous system, uh, neurons, um, they're neuroprotective, uh, they'll tend to help keep your, your nervous system uh, in good health and uh, not aging so well. Uh, they can help protect your nerves from bacterial infections and uh, things like that. Um, so it's not bad uh, to mimic the composition of a breast milk and to get a little bit of the shorter chain fats in, in your diet. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and coconut oil is probably the easiest and most readily available source of those. Mm -hmm. And you did say that uh, you prefer uh, organic uh, virgin coconut oil or cold-pressed co coconut oil. Um, yeah, in, in general, I mean, partly it's a matter of, of taste, uh, but... It tastes better. I can attest to that. It definitely tastes better. Yeah. So. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and we're speaking with Paul Jaminet, uh, discussing his book, Perfect Health Diet. 
Um, sorry to interrupt you, Paul. Um, let's get back to the fats. Now, tell us about omega-6s versus omega-3s and why we should be avoiding most vegetable oils. Yeah, well, those, those are the two classes of polyunsaturated fat. And polyunsaturated means it has a, uh, at least two or more carbon double bonds. Um, which are very fragile, chemically fragile. Uh, they're easily oxidized, and when they get oxidized, they turn into quite toxic compounds. And because they're so toxic, the cells of your body highly regulate these compounds. And also because they're so fragile, uh, the body actually uses their oxidation. So, um, it, you know, the evolution learns how to make lemonade out of lemons. And so when it has uh, the, these fats that are fragile, uh, it actually uses them as signaling molecules. Your cells intentionally oxidize them uh, or allow them to be oxidized and use that as a signal of certain kinds of stress or infection and so on. And, and so they trigger inflammation. Um, and if you flood your body with these fats so that you have an excess, um, cells try to keep the omega-6 level very low. Um, you know, so they're regulated to a certain amount. Um, uh, and that's important because it controls the downstream signaling uh, of these oxidized uh, polyunsaturated fats. And if you flood your body with them, which is what most people are doing uh, because of the, the high intakes of uh, vegetable oils these days, uh, you know, and then, then people develop chronic inflammation uh, and poor health. Mm -hmm. um, so these are not good structural elements for most cells. And if you eat more than your body can dispose of, uh, then they build up. Uh, and they're a major cause of ill health. Um, I think they're probably the primary cause of the obesity epidemic. Um, so it, it's a big problem. And if you look at uh, vegetable oils, Soybean oil is about 57% omega-6. Corn oil is up to 80%. Um, safflower oil is like 75% omega-6. Um, so most of the, you know, nearly all the agricultural vegetable oils are very high in omega-6. So the healthy plant oils are all the tropical oils, like coconut oil, palm oil, um, olive oil, uh, something from a warm climate. If it's something that grows in a northern climate, uh, you know, like wheat, corn, soybeans, then it's probably a very unhealthy oil. I thought it was interesting that you said that obesity is actually a very healthy response on the part of the body to try and get these circulating uh, fatty acids out of the system and into storage. Yeah, if you can sequester the omega-6 fats away from the body, then they won't poison you. Mm -hmm. um, but that's only a temporary uh, solution. It, you know, it, it's fine if you eventually uh, deplete them. If you go through periods where they're uh, where you're you're in a calorie deficit and you're able to oxidize these fats slowly, you can only do so many in a day. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if you can slowly release them, uh, so you don't elevate the body's omega six levels much and gradually burn them, uh, then it won't do you any harm. Uh, but if people just keep eating the same uh, vegetable oil-rich diet every day, they keep adding uh, to their fat, eventually the adipose cells get saturated uh, and then uh, they're no longer removing uh, these harmful fats from, from the blood and, uh, and, and things can get worse pretty quickly then. Like neuropathy and you know, the the results of diabetes. Yeah, diabetes is the big is the big concern. Mm -hmm. uh, let's so. talk about let's talk about the toxins you mentioned in your book. Uh, you are essentially recommending that we eliminate grains from our diet. Why is that? Yeah, eliminate grains with the exception of white rice. Um, the reason is that. Uh, Certain plants have pretty high levels of toxins uh, that are toxic to humans. And in general, the plants 
that create a lot. Of, now, all plants create a lot of toxins, um, but most of them are directed against insects or against uh, fungi and mold. And some of those toxins can actually be beneficial to us. So if you eat a lot of vegetables, you'll get a lot of antifungal compounds, and those will help keep your gut uh, clear of uh, harmful yeasts. Um, but some plants make compounds that are specifically directed against mammals, and those are the ones that are uh, fed upon by herbivorous mammals, like cattle. Um, so things that grow in grasslands. So herbivorous mammals co-evolved with grasses, and um, and so grasses and legumes are uniquely uh, fed upon by mammals. Uh, so we let them convert the toxins, and then we eat the mammals, and that we're okay with that. Yeah, we're okay with eating the mammals because the mammals um, have have evolved. dealt. With have, yeah, yeah they, they're, they're detoxifying uh, the things for us. But if we eat the grains directly, um, first of all, we're not so good at detoxifying cereal grains. Uh, so, you know, cows have these, have these foregut fermenting chambers, rumens, uh, where the bacteria uh, fight it out with the grains. And the bacteria do a lot of detoxification. Mm -hmm. um, and then any toxins that do enter the cow, they're their liver and other an immune system um, helps to remove them. Uh, but we don't have rumens, um, so the toxins uh, reach our body more directly, and they have big effects. And uh, I, there's more and more research coming out documenting the ill effects of wheat, uh, which seems to be the worst mm -hmm. of, of all the grains. Um, so, for instance, that. Uh, a great study from Japan last summer uh, showed that kids, Japanese children who habitually eat bread, um, are over three IQ points lower than Japanese children who habitually eat rice. And um, so well, you know, the Japanese eat a lot of soy, and soy is one of the very questionable um, legumes that uh, uh, seem to be quite toxic. Now, why is it that in Asian countries they do okay with soy and we don't? Well, I don't think they do okay with soy. Well, they, they'd be better off uh, eliminating the soy also. Mm -hmm. uh, but they happen... They do have better health than we do, and I think that's primarily due to the to using rice rather than wheat as their staple grain. I see. Uh -huh. um, Paul, you were talking about why people get chronic infections, um, and we were talking about the the, the toxic load from food uh, and oils. Um, do you do you think that there are other issues that feed into this? What what is um, depleting our immune system? Um, well, malnutrition is another factor. Um, so the major factor there, uh, I think, is actually something that's been a great uh, public health boon, um, which is water treatment. So mm -hmm. um, people used to get a lot of infections through their drinking water, and our purified water treatment has really helped us there, but it also removes all the minerals uh, from the water, uh, and, and water used to be a major source of, of mineral intake, um, especially for magnesium. Um, and then agriculturally produced food uh, tends to deplete the soil of, of minerals, especially if you grow the same crop year after year. If it's not restored with fertilizers, then uh, then the plants become depleted in minerals. Um, and then some other factors have also reduced our micronutrient intake. So, you know, definitely when you're eating a lot of sugar and things like that, then uh, you're not getting very many minerals with those calories. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so lower nutrient density of food is another factor. Um, so a number of factors have conspired to make most people malnourished in in quite a number of uh, micronutrients. 
and minerals are usually where the biggest problem is. So most people aren't too bad in terms of vitamins. Um, a lot of people are bad in terms of vitamin D uh, because they work indoors um, and they don't get much sun in the winter either. Um, so vitamin D is a big problem. Uh, but after vitamin D, the, the biggest problems are minerals, things like magnesium, selenium, iodine, um, zinc and copper. Uh, so an awful lot of people are malnourished and most of those minerals and the vitamin D have big impacts on immune function. Uh, it's interesting that with the, particularly with the American diet, uh, which is very low in seafood, we get very little iodine in our diet. And so it's put into the salt, uh, just enough to prevent goiter. But of course, the salt is refined salt. You don't get iodine in sea salt. So uh, we were talking earlier about the, the importance of iodine. Can you expand on that? And how would you recommend we get it into our diet? Yeah, well, iodine is an extremely important compound, and most people get too little, so um, it has big effects. If you're deficient in iodine, then cancer rates are much higher, um, immune function is worse, um, and it also has big effects on uh, development of babies. Uh, so iodine deficiency is the leading cause globally of mental retardation. Even in the United States, where uh, the most severe iodine deficiencies aren't that common. You know, still mild iodine deficiencies that might take off four or five IQ points from babies are, are pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and it, it's, a, it's a significant problem even in the United States. Um, and it's a growing problem because people are eating less salt, uh, partly based on government advice. Uh, oftentimes the salt they eat isn't iodized. Um, uh, so um, iodine deficiency is a big problem. So you're uh, suggesting putting uh, seaweed into the diet? Well, seaweed is a, is a nourishing food. We do recommend eating seaweed. Um, but we also recommend some iodine supplementation, mm -hmm. uh, which needs to be accompanied by selenium supplementation. So selenium is very important for thyroid function and um, if you're deficient in selenium and you supplement iodine, uh, you're going to uh, cause some serious problems for yourself. Um, and also, if you do supplement iodine, you should start with a low dose and work up dosage very gradually. Never double the dose more than once a month. Um, and But I think there are real benefits to getting up to... Uh, uh, maybe a few milligrams a day, um, along with say 200 micrograms of selenium a day, uh, as a as a supplement. Mm -hmm. What other supplements do you think are essential to add into the diet? Um, I would say the, the most important are magnesium, uh, which so many people are deficient in, um, and uh, vitamin D. Uh, in the winter time. So the best thing is for people to monitor their vitamin D status once in a while uh, by asking your doctor to measure the serum 25-OHD, uh, 25-hydroxyvitamin 25 25 D levels. Um, and for most people, that should be in the vicinity of 40 nanograms per milliliter. Typical Americans are closer to 20, in the, especially in the winter time. Mm -hmm. um, it's good, the best thing is to get sunshine uh, midday sunshine on bare skin as much as you can, uh, but in practical life, uh, especially in the winter in, at northern latitudes, uh, you know, that can be difficult. So um, it may be desirable to supplement. Um, a good dose for supplementation in, in the winter may be 2,000 or 2,500 IU. Um, Do you think that should be taken together with vitamin K? Yes. So vitamin K2 is another important supplement. Uh, that we recommend. Uh, there's evidence that a lot of people are deficient in vitamin K2. And vitamin D, vitamin K2, and vitamin A work synergistically together. Uh, you need all three of them together in order for each one to function properly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and vitamin K2 is another one that can uh, cause 
Uh, if it's deficient during pregnancy, it can cause neurological defects in the developing baby. Um, it's very important for nerve function, for bone health. It's very important for preventing calcification of arteries, so it's, it's very good for uh, preventing cardiovascular disease. And it's also shown anti-cancer effects. Um, so we cite some studies about that in the book. So what are some natural sources of vitamin K? Well, uh, there's basically two sets of, of sources. Um, liver, animal livers are a good source. Um, dairy, if it's, uh, particularly if it's grass-fed dairy, is a good source. Also fermented foods. So bacteria release a form of vitamin K2 uh, when they ferment foods. Um, so any kind of fermented food will be a, a good source. Like sauerkraut uh, or kimchi? Yeah. So a lot of the uh, uh, commercial vitamin K2 supplements are made from fermented soy. Uh, the, the Japanese eat this fermented soy product called natto a lot, and uh, that has high levels of K2. Uh, but any kind of fermented food will produce it, and everybody gets a little bit of K2 from uh, fiber fermented in their colons. Um, but uh, it's good to, that's not enough to give you an adequate uh, vitamin K status. Um, especially if you don't eat a lot of fiber. So uh, um, it's very desirable to get some vitamin K2 in your diet. Mm -hmm. You recommend vitamin C as well, don't you? That's right. So um, now vitamin C is kind of an unusual thing. Your, your need for it can vary substantially. Um, particularly if you have infections, you can have quite large uh, needs for it. Um, in fact, in some... Uh, viral infections, your body can utilize up to like 100 grams a day. Um, it's been found. So, um, if it's available. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that may have therapeutic value in, in viral infections. I uh, have heard of, of people actually getting intravenous uh, vitamin C to very good effect. Um, yeah, that's more speculative. Um, in, in general, basically, the more you the more you need vitamin C, the less it will be irritating to your bowel. So the bowel only becomes intolerant to vitamin C once you're, you're replete with it. Your cells aren't taking it up anymore. So, uh, it, you know, so you don't really need uh, intravenous injections for any of the well-documented benefits of C. Mm -hmm. um, you can just take it orally. Um, and if you ever take vitamin C and start feeling queasy, then you should stop taking it. Uh, but or cut uh, that down. Mm -hmm. Yep. And now, in general, I recommend taking somewhere between like 500 milligrams to a gram of vitamin C a day, just as a prophylactic thing to make mm -hmm. sure you don't become deficient. Vitamin C deficiency can be a very serious issue. Um, if you ever do get an infection. Uh, you know, then you'll need more than that. Most days you'll need less. But if you need less, there's there's nothing wrong with taking 500 milligrams. You'll just you'll just excrete it in your urine. Um, if you if you need more, it can really be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was very interesting where you caution people, uh, anyone who is a cancer patient getting chemotherapy. Um, you caution them against taking vitamin C because it protects the cancer cells too. That's right. So cancer cells are human cells, and so things that benefit human cells can benefit cancer. So if if you do have cancer and you're undergoing treatment, uh, you know this is the big has been the big problem developing cancer therapies is that any things that hurt the cancer cells tend to hurt the body too, so they have bad side effects. Um, uh, you know, as anyone who's taken chemotherapy can tell you. Um, so you really need to talk to your oncologist if you have cancer. Um, what I would do if I had cancer, when I'm not taking uh, chemotherapy, then I would take some vitamin C. I would stop it at, at some period before the chemotherapy starts and, and not use it during chemotherapy. Um, but I would recommend everybody talk to their oncologist about all of their supplements and uh, uh, and try to figure out how to optimize things. Mm -hmm. Now, you um, 
talk about the the kind of third leg being um, uh, 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 that impairs our health, being viruses, bacteria, fungi, etc. And uh, you're you're quite a fan of antimicrobial drugs um, as necessary. But you also talk about autophagy, which is the the body's own response to kind of uh, eating up these bugs. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so uh, autophagy or autophagy is uh, is one of the one of the most important parts of the body's innate immune system uh, that defends against pathogens. So it, it's it's the main defense mechanism against intracellular pathogens. So pathogens that have gotten inside a cell. And um, now autophagy serves two purposes. One of them it's a resource recycling mechanism. Um, so anytime you're short of energy, then uh, your your cells, uh, digestive organelles, will go look around for junk proteins and uh, junk old, decrepit organelles, mitochondria and so on, and it, it will digest them and recycle their fats and their amino acids uh, and their glucose uh, so that those can be used by the cell for energy. Isn't the body amazing? Yep, but but while they're doing that, they'll also look around for bacteria and viruses and try to digest them mm-hmm. and convert the bacteria and viruses into fats and amino acids and so on that the cell can use. Um, so anytime you upregulate autophagy, uh, you're sending these organelles out to look around for bacteria and viruses and eat them up. Um, so it's good to do that regularly, and one way to do that is by intermittent fasting, uh, which is uh, fasting for maybe 16 hours a day and confining your eating to eight hours a day. Um, and there are some other ways. We mentioned the coconut oil earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, promotes creation of ketones, which promote neuronal autophagy. So. It helps keep bacteria and viruses out of your neurons, and that will help keep you uh, from developing diseases of old age like dementia or neuropathy. Um, you know, so a, a lot of the, the problems that affect, afflict elderly people um, can be prevented by promoting autophagy. Uh, so you were, you were recommending like uh, either the 16-hour fast as a regular practice or maybe one day a week like 24 or 36 hours? Yes, um, that's right. That's and, right. and so you're supposed to be eating the coconut oil during the period of the fast? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, it's a matter of taste and also preference. So uh, the coconut oil will tend to, eating to- coconut oil will tend to cause less autophagy in the body as a whole. Uh, but it will tend to maintain or promote autophagy in neurons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so for instance, I was trying to recover from a neurological cognitive uh, disorder, and, and coconut oil was helpful, helpful to me. Um, but everyone needs to judge their own case. And uh, um, so I think for, for general health, uh, it's not, coconut oil isn't, isn't necessarily going to be helped during the fast, uh, but it might. And, uh, you know, so what we try to do in our book is is uh, teach people about the biology, the pros and cons, so they can make judgments for themselves about what's likely to be best in their own personal situation. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I think... Uh, I, you know, but I think if you're fasting and you become hungry, then you should eat something. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so you can, a fast doesn't need to be zero calories. It can just be reduced calories. Um, so I don't think people should should go hungry. I don't think they should suffer during a fast. Um, and the, cho- the choice of what you eat, there's basically two strategies uh, which can be beneficial in different circumstances. Uh, one of them is to follow what's called a protein-sparing modified fast, where you try to eat a little bit of protein, uh, because protein is 
what your body is most likely to become deficient in during a fast. Um, and then the other approach that can help relieve hunger is to eat uh, coconut oil or MCT oil to help generate some ketones uh, because the other problem that may develop is uh, uh, low blood glucose or neuronal starvation and, uh, the, and the ketones will help prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, so particularly if people are trying to lose weight and, and they fast, um, I recommend uh, taking maybe a tablespoon of coconut oil whenever they get hungry. So whenever uh, brain cells are short of energy, then they'll make you hungry. Um, and coconut oil will relieve that. And there's also another benefit for weight loss uh, from doing that, uh, which was identified by Seth Roberts, who's the author of the Shangri-La Diet. He's a psychologist. And he worked out that um, if you take some tasteless calories uh, in between meals, uh, then that will help reduce your appetite over the course of the day. And uh, so that can also be a um, a weight loss aid. Uh, interesting strategy. Well, uh, if you've just joined us, we're listening to, we're speaking with Paul Jaminet discussing his book, Perfect Health Diet. Paul, your wife is on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Do you think that, uh, how, how have your views been received within the medical establishment? Well, you know, she's tried to keep her professional life separate from, uh, you know, she kind of thinks of this diet book as our, our personal enterprise, and so she hasn't really uh, publicized it to her colleagues. She's given some copies as gifts, but uh, um, you know, she hasn't she hasn't really tried to. Uh, Have you gotten any feedback from colleagues? Um, you know, several. Um, one Harvard faculty member that she gave it to um, has said that uh, it, it's been helping him and his wife, um, but uh, not, not a lot of feedback. I think, you know, doctors and especially, you know, like Harvard scientists are, are very busy, and they tend not to read too much outside their specialty. So, uh, you know, it's... Um, Don't confuse me with facts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think they'd be interested, but um, I, I'm not even sure how many people have, have read her book, you know, even among the ones who are aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have gotten a lot of feedback from doctors and clinicians um, who, and I know a number of clinicians recommend our book to their patients, and uh, we, we've had a lot of success stories from uh, people like that. Well, given this attitude within the medical establishment, where do you see the future of medicine going? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think uh, um, that's one of the things uh, we're working on on our blog is uh, uh, to try to uh, create a community and to figure out a way to move medical practice in a better direction. So I think I think it's gradually becoming clear to people that uh, the pharmaceutical approach to medicine has been a failure. Um, you know, it, by and large, it mitigates one symptom at the cause of creating other symptoms. You know, so it, it kind of moves pathologies around the body rather than curing them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, you know, now there are exceptions to that. I would say antimicrobial medicines um, for infections have been a big success. I would say you know, in some cases, hormone replacement like insulin for diabetes or thyroid hormone and hypothyroidism, you know, have been uh, big successes. But for the most part, uh, you know, most medications aren't really that helpful. And, uh, and in most of them, you know, you can make real arguments whether the harms outweigh the benefits. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. So, um, so tell us about your blog, and uh, you're creating kind of a community interaction on it. Yeah, so we're, uh, uh, and, you know, in some ways we're trying to pioneer a new model of uh, science. So, you know, without, without denigrating, uh, you know, the, the way science has 
is normally done. You know, my wife does it, and uh, um, and we need we need that kind of science. But science, as it's as it's done, for the most part, is very slow. It's very expensive, um, and because and it's very hierarchical, kind of centralized. The funding all comes from uh, one or two sources, um, and you know they have uh, peer review committees, which tend to uh, entrench a certain paradigm, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know fund people they know, and uh, you know so it, it's not as creative as it could be. Um, you're being very kind, but I can understand that. Uh, so your blog, uh, your website is perfecthealthdiet.com? That's right, yeah. And uh, pe- people can sign up on it to uh, leave comments and leave their own experiences, right? Yeah, that's right. So we have, uh, we have a question and answer page. Um, we believe that... You know, since uh, malnutrition and toxins and infections are, we think, the fundamental causes of nearly all diseases, that if you fix diet and you can diagnose what pathogens you have and treat the infections, then you should be able to cure just about anything. And well, absolutely, and you've you've heard it from from the the horse's mouth. Doctor Paul Jaminet and and his wife have cured themselves. Uh, from many, many chronic diseases. And if you want to learn more, go to their website, Perfect Health Diet. They've been talking. They've put out this book, Perfect Health Diet, and it is so chock full of information. I can't recommend it more highly. So um, we have been talking with Paul, and, and next week, we're going to have internationally renowned psychic Diana Cooper, who will be joining us from England. We'll be hearing about her latest book, Transition to the Golden Age in 2032. Diana will offer detailed forecasts for the economy, politics, climate, and spirituality around the world. You won't want to miss it. So, Paul, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for the valuable pieces you have added to the puzzle of how to be healthy. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. It's been such a pleasure having you. We're going to conclude our show with the track of the week, and today we have a cheerful little song called There is a Light by singer-songwriter Alan Peterson.
that shines through the sister, that shines through the brother, each and every one. was There is a Light by New Thought singer-songwriter Alan Peterson, who spans the U.S. from Portland, Oregon to Baltimore, Maryland. To connect with Alan, you can go to his website, alanpeterson.net, that's A-L-A-N-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N.net. So until next week on Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.